Welcome back to the Oyster in the Pearl. I'm Jennifer Dett. I'm the program director at Christiana. And this is our second part, part two, on promotion and tenure. Last episode, we talked about uh, promotion and tenure. We defined it. We tried to decide what was important on your CV uh, and who's on the committee and all those kind of nuts and bolts. And today, uh, Dr. Jennifer Yee and her crew continue the conversation on how you actually get promoted, which I think is, uh, again, going to be helpful for both season folks and folks that are very new to this process. So once again, Jennifer, uh, thank you for all your hard work on this, and I look forward to today's conversation. So several of you have mentioned that people often move between pathways. Do most new faculty members start as a clinician educator and move into the clinical scholar role and then into the tenure track What's the time frame usually on that? And or do people often start in that tenure role if they've got significant research experience? How how does that usually go in terms of progression? So tenure is actually something that needs to be proven. So frequently a chair will take um, a budding researcher on as projected tenured faculty, but they may not have received their NIH funding yet. National level funding um, typically goes hand in hand with tenure. Therefore, you could be hired as as a tenure track faculty, but once you're on that tenure track, that is the only time, absolute time limited pathway through promotion. You must have a four-year review on tenure. You must have achieved tenure at year seven, or else there's peril of you leaving the university. So it's really important if you come in as a tenure track faculty that you have all of the underpinnings to be able to succeed. That's why a number of people may be brought in like under a clinical scholar pathway with some clinical release time, but then move into a tenure track pathway um, at some point later in their career. So many schools are now looking at the tenure clock. It used to be very rigid. It was sort of seven years from, you know, making assistant professor, you were either up or out. And because we've got more women in the workforce, um, people want to take time off for children, taking time off for other things. There has been a push nationally to try to reset the clock a little bit or at least to allow pauses in it so that people weren't getting sort of to the end of that time period and not having the goods to prove that they were meritorious enough to, to receive tenure. Because as I said, once you get tenure, it's sort of hard to get rid of you. And so from the university's perspective, if you work really hard early out, um, and don't get tenure, then what do you do next? And so they were losing a lot of faculty, especially women, because of this artificial clock. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I think, uh, and, and to give you some perspective, we have a department of emergency medicine that has over 100 faculty. I think we're at 104, 105. Um, only two faculty have tenure. Uh, those are our NIH researchers that, that have a lot of external funding and have had, you know, very, very long careers in emergency medicine. So they earn the tenure. And again, tenure starts at associate professor. So it's not something that you get straight out of the, your first job uh, in, any, in any specialty in medicine. So the majority of the people 
are going to be either in the clinician educator or the clinician scholar, some sort of range in, in that in that area. Um, and this is something that you need to discuss with the chair or whoever is employing you. Um, uh, the, setting you up in the right track uh, gives you more opportunity for success and for um, for the right timing for your for your first promotion. If if you are in the incorrect track or you choose to change tracks, some universities also kind of set back the clock a little bit for promotion and you have to wait a certain number of years. In our institution, it's three years. If you have a pathway change, you have you cannot be promoted in that next uh, three-year time frame. The other thing that's important is that over time, tenure, the importance of tenure has varied, um, especially at medical schools, because most schools are so reliant on the clinical income that's generated by physicians that Getting tenure, while it was always sort of the ideal triple threat, um, has become much less common. And in fact, at least at my university, there are now more non-tenured, what we refer to as clinician track faculty, than traditional research-based investigator tenured faculty. And so that's changed the whole sort of aura of tenure but also, I think it is no longer, if you're, if you're a clinician track, it's no longer looked down upon that somehow you're not as academically successful as the tenured faculty. Dr. Velez, as faculty members go up for promotion, who can they reach out to for mentorship and sponsorship? Great question. And I think the, the first thing that I will say is that Promotion or the process for promotion starts the day you start your job. Uh, so although it's a six to seven year, sometimes a little bit longer process for you to get to your first promotion, it, it can be a little shorter in some other institutions. You need to be working towards promotion from the moment you start. Uh, so I think first start is talking to the people who employ you, talking to your chair, talking to your direct supervisor, talking to your medical director, your program director, all the internal people in the Department of Emergency medicine, who will be ultimately the people who put you up for promotion and support your promotion process. Many departments of emergency medicine have been developing departmental committees that look at promotion and tenure, and they meet with you at certain moments in time. I would say if your department does not have an internal promotion and tenure committee that understands the process really well, and uh, and is ready to mentor and guide you, uh, for you to go and ask that one one uh, gets developed because in, in our department, for example, it has been very useful. And you meet with those people regularly. Of course, mentors and advisors, whether they're at your institution or outside of your institution, are super, super important in this process. Podcasts like this and, and, and organizations, national organizations, regional organizations are good places where you can talk to people in emergency medicine who have been promoted, who have been through the process. And although the process has changed, change between institutions a little bit. In essence, the process is very, very similar. Um, and if you belong to underrepresented minorities in medicine, there are some organizations that kind of help you find mentors who are like you, women in emergency medicine, black people in emergency medicine, Asians in emergency medicine, and they, they can help you navigate some of the other complexities of kind of getting promoted as an underrepresented in medicine. Uh, I would also say that don't lose the value or don't over underestimate the value of people from other departments who can be very, very helpful to you. Uh, so UT Southwestern has different groups of 
people from multi-departmental uh, areas that, that come together every so often and they kind of help each other uh, with, uh, with projects and ways to uh, promote people up. So in your department, outside of your department, in your institution, other institutions, and look out for your entire specialty. Great. Sounds like you want to reach out to people who have been through the process and be liberal in that goal. So Dr. Gorgas, what are the benefits from being promoted from assistant to associate professor and then associate to full professor? Uh, well, uh, first tangibly is that um, you get paid more. So there's some salary compensation that goes <laughs> along with it. Um, and from institution to institution, it really varies on if you get some more release time associated with this. Typically, there's a little bit more release time or a little bit more CME funds that go along with it. The, the true benefits, though, are understanding that nationally and internationally, frankly, the gradations of academic uh, rank are really used as shorthand for your level of accomplishment. When you move from assistant to associate professor, that is shorthand for saying this individual has developed local or regional leadership and a national recognition. When you move from associate to full, that is shorthand to say this individual has attained a level of national or international leadership. That title translates directly into opportunities. When departments are looking for leadership roles, operations, academic leaders, um, chairs, vice chairs, program directors, oftentimes those roles are limited by academic rank. So to be a, a, a chair in almost any program, you would need to be at least an associate professor level and more commonly a professor level. So that's really the benefit that is inferred by promotion. There are responsibilities that go along with being promoted as well. And if you're thinking about the benefits, you should think about that increased workload that's going to be coming to you as being, being promoted in either academic rank. Um, there's service to the promotion and tenure committee. And with each of the commensurate academic rank promotions, there's increased responsibility in mentoring junior faculty. I like how that ties back to your responsibility as you move up the ladder is to reach back down and help pull someone up. Lifting as you climb, right? That's right. Is there anything else that you wish you would have known or any resource that you recommend? That's a that's a great question. I, I, I think if I had known something was that almost everything that you do as a resident can count. Uh, so all the volunteering that you do, all the lectures within your program, you can put them in your educational portfolio. I would go further and point out that people often think that if it's something isn't can't be labeled as scholarly, that it isn't going to be given credit. And for many clinicians who are doing a lot of heavy administrative work, things like developing care pads or being part of a of a Q&I committee that generates a report that looks at how your institution has, you know, cared for sepsis or for trauma or whatever. Those kind of activities are actually ripe for credit. But the difference is if you just attend the meetings, you don't get credit. If you attend the meetings and somehow can write them up, so as a case report or putting it into a description about, you know, what your institution did that's novel and different in caring for sepsis, those kind of, of activities 
are clearly material for which people can take and get academic credit. So, Dr. Velez, could you outline some of the common trends that might be seen between different programs processes? I know we touched about or touched on it a little bit earlier, but if you'd be able to outline some of the big things to know. Sure. Uh, Some of the institutions have been modernizing the tracks. And uh, by that, I mean that Dr. Char and others have expressed before the, the concept of the triple threat. And in the past, in, if you wanted to stay in academics, you needed to be sort of like a triple threat. You needed to be an excellent clinician. You needed to do outstanding education. You also needed to engage in scholarship and research. And uh, as medicine has become more complicated and academic institutions have become more complex, um, people have realized that you sometimes cannot be that triple threat. Uh, so they have started valuing the, the faculty who bring a, a lot of uh, clinical um, innovation and uh, clinical care to the institution and they have they have de-emphasized they have created tracks that de-emphasize the triple threat concept in terms of you know not having to do research but focusing more on clinical uh, uh, modernizing the education you know the people that do education now there's a there's a higher barrier uh, and a higher um, uh, a, a lot of uh, work that you have to do to be a great educator uh, in any area of medicine so emphasizing those areas and de-emphasizing again the triple threat I think many institutions have been recognizing digital scholarship and digital education like foam education and emergency medicine in this regards have been ahead of many other specialties in that we engage in a lot of digital scholarship whereas other specialties have the more traditional kind of education methods so many promotion and tenure uh, committees and institutions have been looking at at people who have a very um, strong and valuable presence that reaches out internationally uh, through digital scholarship and digital education. I think the processes used to be very uh, nebulous and very obscure to the majority of the faculty. So increasing the transparency has been another kind of movement and making sure that people understand what they're aiming for and what they need to do in order to be successful in the promotion and tenure is is, is something else that I have seen uh, happening a lot. And uh, we just mentioned this, but I will emphasize it again and I will mention it again. Uh, Non-traditional scholarship is being more and more recognized. I mentioned digital scholarship but also budget savings to the hospital. When you create a care pathway that eliminates a costly medication that is not needed or is outdated, uh, when you streamline processes that result in in cost savings to the hospital or to the university, that is being recognized as as scholarship or some some type of kind of scholarship. Creating care pathways for patients, it was mentioned before, I'll say it again, Um, creating educational materials or curricula all of those things in the past were not as valued as they have become in the last decade. And I think as we move forward, uh, we'll probably be recognizing more the non-traditional work that clinicians bring that is very valuable to an institution, but it was not thought of as traditionally as research or scholarship. I'd like to probably add to that by saying uh, one of the most frequent pitfalls or errors that I see when uh, folks are going from assistant to associate, especially, you know, you know, we in emergency medicine work as part of a team. So a lot of the verbiage that we use is we, 
Well, we isn't getting promoted. I is getting promoted. So everything that you um, that you propose and present to the promotion and tenure committee should have you as the focus. So it's, I did this, I did that, I contributed in this way. It is part of the candidate's job to make sure that those non-traditional avenues of scholarship, digital scholarship, digital education, systems-based work, clinical policy work, that all of that is articulated and defended by the candidate. It's really the candidate's job to let the promotion and tenure committee know the impact that they have made with their scholarly work. And that's going to be more and more important as scholarly work takes many different forms. There is the scholarship of production, but there is always tied with that the scholarship of dissemination. So if you do something great and it stays locally in your institution, it really doesn't improve the national recognition of your medical center or your college of medicine. We're not only looking for that productivity at P&T, but we're looking for the dissemination of that productivity as well. I heard that is one of the tricky parts of the dossier by people that have gone through it is that Typically, we are so often thinking our, of ourselves as a team and taking credit as a team, but when it comes time to describing your own accomplishments, some people aren't as comfortable doing so, but this is the time to be honest rather than modest and say, this is what I have contributed. Exactly. There's no team in dossier, but there is an I. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> So, Dr. Char, what are some common pitfalls of those who were not promoted the first time around? So I think, as Dr. Gorga said, you know, what you're trying to do to get promoted is to tell a story. And therefore, getting promoted takes thoughtful, careful planning and execution. Um, It's often a year-long process that's been two to three years in the making. So it doesn't just happen. Um, The faculty member must demonstrate scholarly achievement to a committee of faculty. And the key here is that many of those people who are judging you do not know what it is you do. If you have a committee of the school that's made up of an ENT and an anesthesiologist and a surgeon, they may not exactly understand what emergency medicine, let alone toxicology or ultrasound or even PDM is. And so you're relying on the word of other experts whose written testimony is supporting your promotion, so that your, your portfolio must tell a clear and compelling story of achievement over many years. And I think what I see most often is unsuccessful individuals usually have not created that paper trail that's clear to the PNT members. Um, the faculty member's effort is rushed, and referee letters are either inappropriate, they don't support the contention, or the CEP is often sloppy and incomplete. And so it gives an unclear picture of the effort you've put into it. Um, the faculty cannot demonstrate sometimes that they've met the university's requirements. So what I often tell candidates in, in my own faculty is what got you to the first step that got you from instructor to assistant is not what's going to get you from assistant to associate, nor is it going to get you from associate to professor, right? As Dr. Gorgias mentioned, you now have to become a national figure or you have to have international reputation to become a full professor. And so you as the candidate really need to understand 
what the university is looking for, what criteria they're going to use in order to judge whether the, the activity you have done has demonstrated that you've met those requirements. I think it's a chair's job to make sure that the faculty member is ready for promotion and has the goods to prove it. But equally frank, it's better to have your own department turned on a colleague than to risk putting that individual up before the university P&T committee and being denied. I, I will second that. I think it, it is very important to, for the department to make sure that that person is ready. Uh, but ultimately, it is your career. and it, it is you who decides to either engage in what people are recommending that you do to be successful for promotion or not. Uh, most of the people in our department who we do not choose not to put up for promotion is because they have not been following uh, the guidance that we have given them uh, to be successful. And uh, it's critical that you follow the guidance, the official guidance of the university and the unofficial guidance that you're getting from your department and your colleagues as to how you make to make yourself uh, successful in the promotion and tenure process. So are you able to ask for feedback and say, what could I have done to strengthen my application? We That would be something that when we have our internal promotions committee look at a file, um, before we're willing to push that to the chair to say, submit it, we'll do a mock review and we will go back to the individual faculty member and give them feedback. And it's in the beginning, it was a very uncomfortable situation because it was sort of like telling your friends that you didn't think they were worthy. But what we realized is that you're doing them a favor as much as they may not initially see that, that being honest and saying, look, if I wasn't, if I couldn't figure out what your spin, what the point of your effort was here, if you haven't made it clear to me, and I understand what it is we do, what do you think someone from ENT or ophthalmology is going to sort out and understand about this document? So I think it's important to, to be honest with each other and that also to recognize that not everybody wants to or has to get promoted, um, especially to the associate and the full professor level. That takes a lot of energy and effort. And some people are happy being an assistant or maybe getting to an associate and they don't have a desire to go beyond that. And I think we have to respect that as well. Dr. Gorgas, what resources are available to review the general P&T process? The best, and I, I think the first resource that I always direct people to is the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine's Academic Promotion Toolkit. Um, it is um, readily available online, uh, and it is a great step-by-step that tells you where you are in your career, what you should be doing, and, ex- and demystifies the entire process of promotion and tenure um, to a large extent. General information, though, if you wanted to look at some really great web pages on this, and the ones that I typically used, um, Emory has a great promotion and tenure web page. Uh, the University of Washington has a helpful page in the fact that they actually post ideal CVs, and they actually have examples of teaching philosophies, um, so that narrative statement that needs to be written. Um, I, I certainly don't recommend plagiarizing those, but at the same time, it'll give you a, an idea of what a, a successful teaching philosophy looks like. Um, I'm going to call out my own institution, the Ohio State University, in the fact that we have a, um, a, it's called a FAME Center. It stands for Faculty Advancement 
mentoring and engagement. Um, it is not a Department of Emergency Medicine initiative, but it is a College of Medicine initiative. But it's got great programming and lots of online resources. You can find peer evaluations for teaching there. You can find example dossiers. You can find um, quick tips and tricks for um, success through the promotion and tenure process, and also some information on how to find a most, the most effective mentor. So one thing that I think is really important is um, most universities, most medical schools have an office of faculty affairs. Under that office is often where you'll find your individual school's um, documents, but also this is often a good source of information um, that's sort of more general, not just to your department, about types of documents, annual performance reviews, information that you can use as you're putting together your dossier. And it's not, and again, it's not something you do just once, but it's really should be an ongoing process. I think the other reason that it's important to reach out to your Office of Faculty Affairs is it will get you starting to network with people outside of your department. Remember, the people that are going to be judging you at a PNT committee are by and large not emergency physicians. And so if you don't understand what the university is looking for and what they value, as has been brought up before, it's going to be very hard to, to give them what they want and be successful. I think one thing that was sort of a rude awakening to some of my faculty was that they're very active at the school level and maybe even regionally, but they haven't spent the time building the network at a national level that they need in order to support their contention to go from associate to full professor. And if at our university, it requires seven letters of those letters, five of them have to be external to the university. And so if you haven't spent the time working on national committees, leading committees, doing group work outside of your institution, it's going to be very hard for you to find seven individuals that can write you a strong letter of support. And so I often tell our junior um, faculty and fellows, the reason you start getting involved at the national level and in, and in other work groups and things like CORD and SAEM and ASEP and AAEM is because that's how you're going to build your network. And it's that very network that you're going to have to rely on to get you letters of promotion, as well as to demonstrate your national reputation and involvement. Thank you all so much for your insights. It's been such a treat to talk to with you today. Agreed. This was actually going to be one 20 minute podcast, but there were so many great learning points. Thank you, Thank you everyone. everyone. I learned a lot. Bye. So to recap, PNT is a process where you present your accomplishments as part of a dossier. You present these accomplishments to an interdisciplinary committee, not just members of your own department. It occurs after you've been recommended for promotion and chosen to pursue promotion. There are several tracks along a spectrum from clinical educator to clinical scholar to tenure track, and progression occurs between tracks. Tenure can feel like something mythical. It's an indefinite post, which means you've made it. Your tenure track when you've made a national or international contribution to your field. The best way to prepare yourself for promotion is by keeping your CV up to date and saving important documents, including review letters from your peers. Don't forget to review your own institution's guidelines as these may vary. 
Build your national reputation early by joining national committees and putting in the work needed. Don't be afraid to ask others for advice on the process if they've already gone through it. Be ready to spend about 40 to 50 hours on your dossier. This is the time to highlight your own accomplishments and your passions. We hope after this session, you'll feel well-equipped to reach your academic goals. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) 